The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. How you doing? I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome or welcome back. Only true democracy and talk. We thank you for listening to us on radio, on stream, on podcast. And we thank you for watching us on Twitter, LinkedIn Live, Facebook Live, and YouTube Live, everywhere that you can watch, everywhere you can listen. The Leslie Marshall Show is there. Have a very important guest joining us today, and it's good to have him back with us. He is Tom Conway. He is president of the United Steelworkers. They're North America's largest industrial union. They're 1.2 million members and retirees strong in the United States, in Canada, and even the Caribbean. They proudly represent men and women who work in nearly every industry there is and nearly every industry that truly touches our lives. Now, President Conway is the union's most experienced contract negotiator in steel, aluminum, oil, and other major industries where USW members work, often directing bargaining during crises. Check out their website. Learn a lot more about the USW. They're not just about steel. USW.org. That's www.usw.org. And please follow them on Twitter and Instagram so you can stay up to date what's going on. Maybe it's an opportunity you want to take as a worker Go to at Steelworkers and follow them there on Twitter and on Instagram, at Steelworkers. More than a pleasure to have back on the show, President Tom Conway, president of the USW. President Conway, thank you for joining us again and and welcome. I know you're really busy and I appreciate you taking the time. Good afternoon. Oh, it's good to be back with you, Leslie. I appreciate it. Uh, And and more than appreciate uh, you uh, and having you uh, with us. You know, right now, when we look at our society, there are huge challenges out there, Um, challenges with the economy, uh, challenges with economic inequality, um, challenges on a human level and not just economic level. When we look at the toll here in the United States and throughout the world that's reverberated as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the list goes on. Now, here in the United States specifically and in Canada and the Caribbean, where there is union representation, there are workers and unions with those workers and representing their workers taking matters into their own hands. And they're doing this to to improve their lives and fighting for social justice, economic justice, and they're doing it on a much wider scale. So let's first talk about how organizing unions can, can be one of the surefire ways to improve wages to ensure safe working conditions, to ensure that you have somebody to speak for you, have that voice on the job. And, and this is across a wide variety of sectors. Uh, let's talk about people who are really looking to their collective power uh, in collective bargaining and in organizing unions in industries across the board in this nation and in Canada and the Caribbean as well. Look, I think we are at a 
sort of a bellwether time in the, in the nation. And it comes about after, you know, some decades of malaise and stagnation and people just feeling that corporations got a little too much power, a little too much control in Washington. And average people just weren't getting a fair deal. And in some ways, the pandemic highlighted it. And it gave people a sense about what work could be like, how it could be different. And so we see a lot of unrest. And while there are a lot of job growth and in the last couple of job reports have been good and people are coming back to work, there still is a big spread in inequality. And in and when you compare what sort of the top of the companies are taking for themselves and what the top of the society still takes for itself, you know, workers are still struggling. And so, um, you know, inflation brings a highlight to it. And I, I think actually, in some ways, the advent of social media has made organizing a little bit different. People can have discussions with each other, particularly in an economy that's that's so spread out and, and there aren't as many workplaces together. People are able to have a discussion um, about their common interests online. So we see a real interest in organizing. And, and not only do you see it in Starbucks and Amazon and places like that, but a lot of shops who really sort of understand, well, this company I work for is, is making a lot of money and, and really not fairly sharing it. And so, um, and so we see more strikes happening. We see more people organizing and understanding that, you know, I mean, the statistics are what they are. If you're in a state that that is not a right to work state, and there's, um, I mean, you 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 can have a 10, 13, 15 percent wage premium over those other states, and and frankly, that's hard to ignore. And and you can you're going to have a benefit package and a some sort of a pension package and some kind of security, and those things come with the union contract. And people are beginning to understand that and act on it. So we see a, a lot of action going on in the in the economy. And I think it's healthy. It's good. It's how you grow a middle class. I think this administration fully understands that. It's why they promote unions um, so widely. It's why this president talks about unions a lot. He sees it as a path to rebuild the middle class and to try and put some power into the hands of workers. And look, unions are essentially a democratic organization and people can can um, come together, work together and, you know, reach an agreement with their employer. And it, it, it doesn't always have to be contentious. You know, if you think about the company that you work for, the officers who run that company, the executives, they all have contracts with that board of directors. They have employment contracts. And that company, wherever it does business with a vendor, with a supplier, with a customer, they do it on the basis of contracts. But the only place they don't want a contract is with their workforce. They don't want to be bound to do what they say they're going to do. And they want flexibility to take it away if they want to. And it's just sort of a foolish approach to think, well, 
you do business by contracts everywhere else in every relationship you have. Yep. But for some reason, you don't want to have that binding contract with the people who really essentially run your business for you every day. And, and so I think people are beginning to understand, you know, I'm no different than anyone else in this relationship. And, um, and I deserve to share in it fairly and, and know what that's going to look like. And so I think that's out there. Oh, no, I, I agree. And, and, you know, I mean, a testament to not just you, but, you know, as the president of the USW, but, you know, unions across the board. And like you said, uh, this administration and especially those states that aren't uh, right to work that um, do have the opportunity for people to unionize. In the fall, last fall, 700 workers at Bobcat in Bismarck, North Dakota, they voted to join the USW. Uh, last week, 200 more at a Bobcat facility in Rogers, Minnesota, did the same thing. But it's not just places like Bobcat where somebody wouldn't raise an eyebrow to the unionization there. This raised eyebrows. Uh, football players, football players in the USFL organized with the USW last year. And this year, they overwhelmingly ratified a first contract to help provide safety and stability to their jobs. And now I'm hearing players in the XFL are also looking to join the USW. People don't think football when they think steel, because USW is not just about steel. It's about workers. It's about worker stability and worker safety. Yeah, look, those those people playing that game, those guys are essentially workers. And they are out there in some ways, just putting their lives on the line. They're, they risk their bodies and bodily harm, and and it could be career-ending for them in a second. So they really have been sort of in many ways taken advantage of, particularly these leagues, the USFL and the XFL. And, you know, you just go out there and hope you don't get hurt. And we've seen this with college athletes over the years when they can lose scholarships. And so, the, the, you know, people would be surprised at the little amount of money that they were play, paid to play in this game. And if you got hurt, you didn't have health care. And if you had to go to spring training, you had to supply your own living expenses. Yep. No one was paying for you to go somewhere else. And so little things like that added up. And, you know, they realized, look, we're going to – we're going to do this and we're going to take the risks and we're going to go out and get hit and hit hard and, and potentially get hurt. So but somebody has to, so somebody has to, to protect to the them. Other. Apologies for the interruption. We're going to take a quick break. We'll continue our conversation with you, President Conway, President Conway, president of the United Steelworkers Union. Check them out at their website, USW.org, and follow them on Twitter and Instagram at Steelworkers back after this. We are back with President Tom Conway, president of the United Steelworkers, the USW, North America's largest industrial union, over 1.2 million members in the United States and retirees in the United States, Canada and the Caribbean. Please check out their website, USW.org, and follow them on Twitter and Instagram at Steelworkers. 
President Conway, before the break, and for those just joining us who missed the first segment, uh, we were talking about Bobcat in both Bismarck, North Dakota, and Rogers, Minnesota, facilities that have added a total of 900 uh, workers uh, to join and voted to join the USW. And so did football players in the USFL, the United States Football League. They ratified a first contract to help provide safety and stability to their jobs. Players in the XFL are also looking to join the USW. President Conway, we are up against a break. Apologies for the interruption. Uh, please uh, continue uh, in your remarks with that because, um, you know, I know some people think NFL players, they're millionaires. Not the case. Yeah, the guys at the top are, but not the people starting out. Like you said, many times they don't have health care. They have to buy their own. They have to move themselves from location to location. And it's pretty hard when you're starting out in professional sports. It's very true, not just in the NFL, but that's a perfect example. And, and it's a wonderful thing that they unionized. And hopefully uh, other players, other leagues will do the same. Yeah, look, I, I think you're seeing that across professional sports in a lot of areas. And, you know, every team's got a headliner and someone who's making a lot of money, whether it's a quarterback or a star player. But but the bulk of that team aren't paid anything like that. And they're standing there on that line and they're taking hits and they're guarding and protecting. And so they really are going to work every day, whether it's in a practice session, whether it's at a game and, um, and they look, they got a right to sort of look out for themselves and make sure that, that in this condition that they're playing, these pretty dangerous conditions, that things are as good as they can be. And so that's what these players look to do. And, and, and we've seen it in other areas too, the, the um, National Women's Soccer League recently joined the AFL-CIO. They highlighted for this country the disparity between yep. women and men in the same sport, and that women's team was winning all the time and paid a fraction of what the men were getting. And so mm -hmm. they are using that to highlight that issue in this country, and still women paid 82 and 83 cents on a dollar. And they've had very important breakthroughs on it. And as and part of being a bigger organization, part of being part of the AFL-CIO and, and having a, a louder voice and a, and a broader place to talk from has been helpful. So we're seeing um, sports, and it's, it's really a form of entertainment, um, although very tough, and, uh, and they understand that. And... You know, when their name is used and their limit, their image or their likeness and companies are making a lot of money off of selling their jerseys and and using them, they have a right to get some remuneration for that and to play a part in that. And, and yeah. so I think we've seen that in college sports and certainly here in the professional league. So we're look, we it, it's just it's just another group of workers that we can help. And, um, and we've been, you know, happy to have them join us and, and work together with them. No, absolutely. I, I think it's awesome for them and, and for the USW. Um, you know, we, we talk about trade a lot, right? And we talk about bad actors like Russia and China. We'll talk about some more specifics regarding trade uh, with Russia. Uh, but I want to congratulate you 
Uh, President Tom Conway was appointed to a key trade panel, the White House's Advisory Committee for Trade Policy and Negotiations, the AS, the ACTPN. Uh, tell us about your position there and what this committee um, you know, hopes to do or what you hope to do being a part of it. Look, this is a, a committee that will advise the United States trade rep. And right now, that's a woman by the name of Catherine Tai, who is essentially the country's lead bargainer, the lead negotiator on trade issues around the world. And so, you know, they put together an advisory committee to talk to us. And, and really, for the first time in a long time, there's some labor folks on there. And our union has been very active on trade issues for decades now. And, and we have been, we have filed lawsuits and petitions and before the International um, Trade Commission and, and the WTO. And, and we largely were made up of a lot of trade impacted industries, steel, aluminum, cement, others. And so we, we had to become very proficient, very sort of expert on this. And, and not many other unions have played in this field the way we have. So, look, I'm, I'm happy to join it. I have spent a lot of time working on trade issues in my career. I, I get along good with this administration, um, particularly with the Ambassador Ty. And I think we're going to be able to have a positive role and consult with them as they're trying to find their way through what is look trade is a tricky business and and um and the world sort of needs to trade with each other but on a balanced basis and on an honest basis and on a rules-based basis and i think when those things are aligned then it can be fine the u.s can export the u.s can import where it needs to but for too long we've been out of balance and anybody who wants to can ship what they want here. And then we get restricted when we're going the other way. And that sort of paradigm needs to get broken down. So I'm looking forward to the work we do there. Yeah. I mean, obviously we need to be exporting more than we're importing and we need to change uh, that uh, deficit. That's certainly an offset. When you talk about trade, you know, uh, p- people you don't understand the effects necessarily of unfair trade, which uh, USW, you and all of the members have firsthand experience with. Uh, that's uh, dumping, illegal subsidies, global overcapacity. All of that undermines jobs. It jeopardizes the communities uh, for these workers. Um, and, and you guys working with USTR to shape trade policies going to help ensure workers' concerns remain at the forefront. So I'd said we're going to get back to Russia so let's do that. Let's just use, um, we, 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 you know what, we're coming up against a hard break again. When we come back, okay. we're going to take a break. And when we come back, I want to talk about Russian aluminum exports and how they harm domestic workers and how they harm industries. Uh, they also prolong war. Uh, uh, the, and the revenue that they're generating continues to fund Putin's war machine, which continues to hurt innocent men, women, and children in Ukraine and even uh, in Russia. We're going to take a break. We'll be back. I'm Leslie Marshall. When we come back, we'll continue this conversation and we'll talk about um, why trade and trade policies and fair trade policies are so essential. I just touched on a few things just with Russia and just with aluminum. 
You know what else Russia's doing? You know what China's doing? We'll be back with an authority on this, and that's Tom Conway, president of the United Steelworkers. The USW, like I said, is North America's largest industrial union. Check out their website, usw.org, and also follow them on Twitter and Instagram at Steelworkers back after this. We are back. Welcome or welcome back. I'm Leslie Marshall. He is president of the United Steelworkers, the USW, Tom Conway. President Conway, you can find out everything that he and the union is doing, not just here in the United States and Canada and the Caribbean. Go to the website, usw.org, and follow them on Twitter and Instagram at Steelworkers. President Conway, uh, thank you for holding. Welcome back. Um, Let's talk about uh, Russia specifically, because they're definitely one of the bad actors when it comes to trade. And there's so many areas, but just, you know, one I want to touch upon, um, you know, I've been reading about and, you know, the USW has just been a plethora of information on on this and other trade issues with uh, countries like Russia, for example, and how the aluminum exports not only harm domestic workers, but are harming the industries, also prolonging the war because it's putting money in Putin's pocket. Yeah, look, in order to understand what's happened to the aluminum industry in the U.S., you need to look back a couple of years. But, you know, for many years, the U.S. produced its own aluminum. It smelted its own aluminum. It had operations to make it. And then slowly they began to close and they began to close because there were sources of cheaper aluminum made in other places with far less environmental regulations or labor regulations. And so we're now down to about four and a half smelters operating in the country. And the, one of the most recent ones to close was the, the last smelter in America that made what's called a high purity aluminum, which you need for aircraft and for military applications. And the F-35 was made with this material. And so America doesn't make it anymore. And it's easy going to come from China or Russia. And there comes a point in time when the country has to say to itself, well, that's just bizarre. I mean, that is, that is crazy to think that we're going to have to rely on what could potentially be an enemy or certainly someone that we could be in contention with for a material as fundamental as something we need for, for our military strength, let alone just our regular commercial strength. And so we're, the, industry, the country now is on the cusp of doing a lot of infrastructure rebuild and a lot of electrical grid upgrade and a lot of solar installations. And that's going to require a lot of aluminum. And aluminum that ought to be produced here if it's tax dollar funds that are going to be um, used to stand those projects up and to get them going. And, and the, uh, the Russian aluminum, even since the invasion of the Ukraine had spiked like 42%. And so, you know, we got with the administration and pushed them hard to say, you have to take a look at this. This can't continue this way. You're just allowing some oligarch who owns a Russian steel company to ship into this market to make a lot of money to rep, rep, repatriate that money back to Putin and fund his war effort. And it's just a self-defeating cycle that you have going on here. So between the Department of Commerce and the, and the United States trade rep, we finally got some tariffs put in place. 
um, about a month ago, a 200% tariff on Russian aluminum, which should sh- slow it down um, significantly. And and while I think it should have been a complete sanction, um, we got to make sure that it doesn't ship through other countries and come in in other ways. And that's a sort of common tactic in trade. But um, the next thing the country needs to do is look at its smelting capacity and invest in it and build a smelter. A company needs to stand one up. This isn't something that the government on its own should do, but it could do it in partnership with private enterprise. And we could put a smelter back online and begin to make the products that the country needs on a day-to-day basis and provide good works and a good union shop and a good living for um, the folks who build it, the folks who live there, and the community around it. I mean, this this is not rocket science. And, um, and you know, people sort of fundamentally understand that if you don't, if you don't make something in your own country, you're going to be reliant on someone else for it. And you sort of got to take care of yourself first before you just throw your markets open in that way and leave yourself so vulnerable. And, and Russian aluminum was, was a classic case. So we've seen that play out in product over product, but, but this one in particular, given its, its usefulness to Putin in, in wartime and, and the spike that it was doing, it sort of needed to get dealt with. And so, the country finally recognized that this is a national defense item. And under that section of the law, section 232, um, they put a heavy tariff on it. And so hopefully we're, we turned a corner on aluminum and we'll start to dig ourselves out of that hole. You know, I want to, I want to thank you, uh, President Conway, as the leader of the USW for advocating um, for those restrictions on Russian imports uh, after the trade actions were announced in, in February, like you said, it's not everything that you want. It's not a panacea at all, but it certainly should help. Is it true that the USW is also now similarly calling for restrictions on petroleum imports? Look, we, we have we have petroleum here. We have refineries. Um, the refineries are sort of slowing down. There is a transition that's undeniable that's going on. But why we would be bringing oil in from other parts of the world when we have our own here, it can be refined. Our refineries are, you know, in, in good shape. And so it just, just the whole idea of going and drilling somewhere else and then bringing it into here in a, in a finished condition, you know, people are always concerned about fossil fuels. But if you're just taking the fossil fuels from somewhere else on the planet and then bringing them in, you're not solving a carbon problem. You're not solving a, a fossil fuel problem. And um, and just importing it, you, you know, typically when you're taking these places, taking it from other parts of the world, you don't have the conditions and controls and regulations that you do normally here. And, and so, look, it's... It, it shouldn't be viewed as any other fundamental input that we have in the country. And, and so, you know, oil is, is something that we watch closely as well. Let's talk about uh, the workers uh, because they're using their activism. Uh, we talked about right to work states 
And the you know workers out there are using this activism to roll back bad laws such as RTW. Uh, they've done it in states like Montana. They've done it in states like New Hampshire. Uh, they've pushed back the right to work uh, to protect their ability to work uh, safer and have safer working conditions, to have higher wages. And now um, there are those uh, in the state of Michigan that are, are fighting uh, to repeal uh, the right to work laws in that state as well. So talk to us about that, mm-hmm. but also President Conway, so that people understand um, corporations are pushing to ram through right to work legislation state by state. Uh, we saw it in 2012 in, in Michigan and some other states and Republicans are doing this as well. And so that people understand, yeah, corporations write checks, some corporations write to Democrats, some to Republicans, but doesn't it benefit somebody whether you're a Democrat or Republican, that your constituency is safer, is healthier, has a better livelihood because they have better pay, they have benefits, and even a pension. I mean, to me, that's a win-win politically. So why aren't Republicans getting on board with this instead of, you know, uh, bending over for the corporations and these right-to-work laws? Well, look, first of all, I think when you when you sort of wonder why that happens, why is it that a politician doing that? I think it's just a matter of you follow the money and and you look at where the financing for their campaigns come from and who they're beholden to. And and then the mystery sort of clears itself up. But the, the whole notion that of right to work is based upon division of workers and sort of pitting workers against each other and the strength of the workforce to to make gains to do well for itself is for to be able to do it collectively and for workers to be able to talk to the company that they work for it in as one voice and do it together and solve their problems together and make their progress together so companies who are promoting and and pushing right to work and politicians who are doing it want to keep that workforce divided and want to keep it from being able to get organized and talk to itself and make that progress. And, um, and so that, that's really the basis of it. And when you look at the right to work states and where it exists, they really have a much worse deal than workers who are able to join a union and make progress for themselves. Absolutely. President Conway, hold that thought. I want you to talk when we come back from the break why this right to work is a bad deal and a bad deal for workers, a bad deal for the states, uh, and, and a bad deal economically. President Tom Conway, president of the United Steel Workers, is our guest. He'll be back with us in a moment. I hope you will as well. Go to their website in the meantime, usw.org, during the break, and take that time to follow them on Twitter and Instagram, at Steelworkers. I'm Leslie Marshall, back right after this. We are back. I'm Leslie Marshall, and the we is he, Tom Conway, president of the United Steelworkers, the USW, North America's largest industrial union, over a million members and retirees strong. President Conway, thank you for holding. Welcome back again. Apologies for the interruption. You were talking before the break about RTW, the right to work laws in various states. They've been pushed back and appealed by workers protecting their rights in states like Montana and New Hampshire. There's a fight for that in Michigan. But you were talking about how the right to work laws actually hurt workers. It's not 
it's not what is being promised uh, by the corporations and the Republican politicians. Tell us about that. Look, people just do better when they do things together and they can make progress. And I think people can see that out of a lot of different movements over the years. And frankly, within the labor movement in the 30s and 40s and 50s and the growth in the way wages were. And when people talk about kind of good times and and nostalgic times, one a large part of it was that there was a lot of strength in unions. And during that, during the last couple of years, corporations have worked hard at trying to crush unions, their ability to, to bargain with companies. And people need to stop and think for a second that if if unions were so ineffective and they weren't making a difference in the lives of people, why would the companies fight about this so much? They would just kind of step back and let it happen. It wouldn't pay attention. But they will invest millions of dollars to hire firms and law firms and union busters and go to any means to stop that workforce from getting together. And so it's why they promote the right to work laws so that they can drive that wedge. And and if people would stop for a moment and think about, look, we are just much stronger as a group. We're much stronger as a team. We can have much more influence than we can individually. And this is not about people losing their individualism. They actually gain much more strength and much more ability to stand up as an individual when they're together in a group. So it, it, it's been a poisonous thing in the country, the whole right to work phenomenon. But it is powered by a lot of money and it's powered by corporations who have gotten a stranglehold on the governments in, in so many different administrations. And it's not just one administration or or Republicans or Democrats. This This goes back for quite a while now. So I think that's part of the trend that you're seeing. You know, when when Starbucks started out, it was a well thought of company and they had little stock options and they had some tuition assistance and people liked being a barista in that place. But as time went on, the company saw how to squeeze that workforce and how to put them on 20-hour shifts in order to avoid paying them health care or mm-hmm. never take them over 32 hours so they didn't have to give them a benefit or never give them a schedule so they would know when they could have time off and some quality of work life with their family. And, and that insidious creeping in and eventually taking away sort of the good parts of that job, that happens constantly in this country. And that's what a union can prevent. It can, it can at least force that company to sit down and talk to that workforce rather than decree what it's going to do. And it gives the workers a sense of balance and a sense of power. And look, unions can't always stop bad things from happening, mm-hmm. but they, they can stop it from just happening to them with no voice at all. And, and I think therein lies the power and the strength. And generally, even if they're, you're, you're not a big supporter of a, a union, people look at it and understand, well, union workers generally do 
significantly better than non-union workers. And, you know, if, 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 if your goal in life is to take care of yourself and your family and to have a good community and a thriving community and a tax base that's worth something and you're not always struggling and watching a company just reap benefits and walk away and take care of the top of the company, there's no other way to do it without a strong labor movement and without organizing yourselves and, and talking to it. And look, not all companies are bad. There are a lot of decent companies out there to work for and, and not all labor relations is always contentious, but it can be fair and balanced and be honest and open with each other. And, and that's the approach that, that right to work looks to strangle and stop it from happening. Yeah, you only do that when you feel very threatened by it, right? Um, let's talk right. about something that hasn't been talked about as much. I don't think it's been on everyone's radar, and we want to change that today. Um, I was very impressed by this, always impressed by you, President Conway, and the USW. Uh, but the USW members um, have been fighting for something, like I mentioned, that's less publicized, but certainly equally needs legislation. And that is bills to help veterans. Now, I I know there is the Federal Uniformed Services Employment and Reemployment Rights Act, USERA, that helps veterans to secure jobs, but it does not offer details on benefits and services. So can you talk about how the USW is fighting for bills to help veterans? Because, you know, I, I don't think and a lot our, of people know about this. At our last convention, you know, last year, the union comes together and and every couple of years we come together as a body and delegates from each local union and make decisions about how the union will move forward. And at that convention, the local unions wanted to establish a veterans committee in each of their local chapters or local unions. And so we did that. And there are a lot of returning veterans with the, with the end of the Afghan war and the Iraq war. There are a lot of women and men who have returning to the workplace and and taking a, a job in a workplace. And there are many who are struggling with that return, but just as many who come in and take a leadership role and have a good set of skills. But oftentimes it's not very organized about where the resources are, where do they get help in the VA? Where can they get help in the community? Where can they learn what their rights are? And so we passed some laws in New York and, and, and now in other states that said that needs to be posted in the workplace. And so veterans who return have a sense about where they can reach out, where the resources are. Um, the union can help them find those things. And so we're sort of moving forward. And, and on, on a lot of veterans issues, um, look, they, they are, you know, these, these are people who serve time, uh, did a, did a good job for the country, and so should not come back and have to struggle and find out, well, where do I get resources? Where do I get help if I need help? Where, um, you know, there are a lot of, there's, there's a fair amount of mental health issues out there when you look at people who are standing on corners with their hands out, and a lot of them are veterans, and, and yes. a lot of female veterans. And, and, and But besides that, there is a, the veterans population brings with it 
a trained leadership and a sense of camaraderie and a sense of this collectiveness that I was talking about and understanding that together we can look out for each other, we can move forward. And so there is a natural tendency for veterans to know that, look, if we do this together, we band together, we, we have a good chance of succeeding. And, and so I think, you know, that's not uncommon for the labor movement. We've seen it happen after past conflicts. And I think it, we're just seeing it happen now. So, you know, we're, we're encouraging our veterans. I, I served in the military um, as a younger man. And, uh, and I think it's, it's a natural place for veterans to find themselves in their union, um, working inside of it, working in a leadership role and trying to, um, you know, take care of them themselves and their families and communities. And, and President Conway, thank you for being president of the union. All you do as the at the helm and leading the USW. Thank you for what you do for workers. Thank you for what you're doing for veterans. Thank you for your service to our nation, sir. And I just want to remind people of all the great uh, resources that are available to veterans as a result of this. In the state of New York, Governor Kathy Hochul signed her state's veterans bill into law. The USW is working with state legislators in nearly a dozen other states to get similar legislation passed. They're also putting their weight behind the commitment to veteran support and outreach, the CVSO Act. It would authorize additional resources to expand the work of county veterans, service officers who are best, often the best resource on the ground to assist veterans in securing the benefits they've earned. Substance abuse, mental health treatment, crisis lines and contact information for the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, a veteran's driver's license and non-driver identification card de designation, educational workforce and training resources, tax benefits, uh, legal services. The list just goes on. This is incredible, an incredible work uh, with uh, the direction of President Tom Conway, our guest today, and the USW of which he is at the helm. Thank you for being with us, President Conway. Once again, their website to find out more about this. Maybe you're a veteran and you're a union worker. Even if you're not a union worker, check it out. Go to USW.org on Twitter and Instagram. Follow the Steelworkers at Steelworkers. And once again, thank you for being with us, President Conway. Always an honor 